Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations with artists, I invite you to come visit David's Werner Gallery exhibitions in person. We're located in New York, Los Angeles, London, Paris, and Hong Kong. New exhibitions open each month. Plan your visit at davidswerner.com. My name is Luke Diamonds and I am a painter. My name is Timothy Snyder and I'm a historian. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. But I, I, I think one, one should be an ambiguous about things, which I think is the most important part of, of art is that it should never be unambiguous. That's where it actually ends up to be propaganda. I always was always against the fact that you could load up an artwork with the political meaning from the beginning, which I think is uh, horrific. Art is the answer, right? About There is no other way to deal with big stories besides art. Art is the only thing which breaks down big stories. I mean, that, that is what artfulness is for me. But so we have to have an internet which actually makes kids create stuff. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This episode's pairing, Luke Timons and Timothy Snyder. In the turmoil after the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, one of the most powerful pieces of writing to emerge was an essay in the New York Times entitled The American Abyss. It warned of the slippery slope from Trump's structural lies to outright authoritarian tactics. And it was written by the eminent Yale historian Timothy Snyder, author of several landmark books on the history of fascism, including On Tyranny and The Road to Unfreedom. His writing caught the attention of Luke Timons, who is a kind of eminent historian himself, of images and their influence and effect on us. Over his long and storied career, Timons has often captured abuses of power and surveillance in his paintings, a concentration camp, say, or the likeness of Condoleezza Rice. And he does so in a way that reminds us not only of the historical events themselves, but also of the ways in which images cover up and reveal our actions. You know, I, I had a, um, a, a some kind of starting place, but I actually think, Luke, you're, what you started with, I would be very curious to hear how the road to unfreedom was already part of your, what sort of things you were thinking about that you then discovered? Well, well I mean, I met my wife in the United States. We have a lot of friends in the United States, we have a lot of dealings with the United States. I never saw the United States as something completely foreign to Europe to begin with. I mean, it's part of the West. And uh, what is important, I mean, that and I, we were also uh, in, in the United States during 9-11, which changed the world, basically, in a sense. And my wife is originated from, uh, originally comes from Venezuela, so I was also able to witness the downfall of an entire country to rather embrace it, populism, which she actually explained to me, which, which would be our future. And out of my Eurocentric vision, of course, and my arrogance, I said, uh, I sort of discarded that a little bit, and I was not correct. And a lot of these things, also foreign influence, uh, Cuban, Russian, the whole situation, sort of like, these were things we were actually talking about nearly on a daily basis. And these are things that then so coincided with the things that were 
uh, I mean, current at the time, which is, of course, this, uh, the, the, the thing that happened in the States, so it's actually still ongoing in the States in the sense. Yeah. And would you agree, uh, Timothy, that, that um, Luke's former arrogance is misplaced? Yeah, I mean, I guess part of the difficulty of being from a place is always trying to get perspective without just reversing your original views. So it's very easy to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of Europe or I'm proud of America, and then to just invert the whole thing, you know, and, but then you haven't achieved anything, right? You haven't actually learned anything. You, you've just, you've just basically, you know, turned yourself around. I, I, I in the US, a lot of the effort I had to go to with On Tyranny and with Road to Unfreedom, which Luke kindly mentioned, was just about this, to, to just to show Americans that it's it, we're not exceptional, either good or bad, right? So there's right-wing exceptionalism, which is we're good, and there's left-wing exceptionalism, which is we're bad. But neither of those actually get you anywhere, like being the best country in the world and the worst country in the world, that doesn't get you any explanatory power. So yeah, I mean, in Road to Unfreedom, I was trying to show that we're global and transnational in ways that you know, are maybe not, maybe not expected, but which do, as Luke says, lead us down some of these same places, lead us down some of these same trails. You know, and Luke and I really started speaking about your work, or it became more present to me, of course, after that piece you wrote on the Capitol riots. And I wanted to ask now with some months space, um, how do you feel um, sort of with a little more distance uh, on that event. Okay, can I can I tell you can I tell you a little story? Do we have do we have time for that? Of course, that? of course. As, so so Luke Luke's already mentioned 9/11 and uh, last night I had a dream about 9/11 which will which will tell you just how I feel. I I so I dreamed that I was in the Empire State Building on an upper floor and a plane hit the building and the building rocked for a moment but then nothing else seemed to be happening. And I, so I, I ran down the steps, right? I ran down the steps, but nobody else seemed to be running down the steps. And I got down to the lobby and people were just milling around in the lobby. No one seemed to be leaving the building. And all the doors in the lobby were locked. You couldn't leave. But then someone, a woman came in with a, with a wheelchair through a handicapped entrance. And I felt bad about doing this, but I kind of scrambled over her to get out of the building because it was totally clear that I should get out of the building. But nobody nobody followed me, right? So everybody just was staying in the Empire State Building. They were all gonna die. And I found myself then, you know, I kind of jumped in the stream. I found myself down in a building which was like a tourist center. And there were all these senior citizens and they're waiting for their tour of the Empire State Building. And I thought, okay, if I can't save the people inside the Empire State Building, I'm gonna at least stop these nice people from taking their tour. So I tried to explain to them, a plane had just hit the building, like the building's going to come down. You don't want to go on your tour. And they all just looked at me. So in the dream, there's like this panoply of senior citizens kind of looking at me like I'm the entertainment, but I'm bad entertainment. Right. And they're just laughing at me. Right. And I can't convince any of them not to go on their tour. That's how I feel. Right. I mean, that dream is the most transparent dream of all time. Right. We, we're, we're not going to have a commission to study 1-6, like we had a commission to study 9-11. That's clearly what was on my mind. And not 1-6 is actually, with all due respect, much worse for us than 9-11. And what I'm thinking of is 
when Trump tells his big lie that he won the election, like that's like the plane hitting the building. And from that point, there's a logic of events which follows. You tell the big lie and then people support the big lie and then people institutionalize the big lie, right? By messing up our elections the next time around. And then we move away from a democratic system. So with, with like as much as I like a lot of the things that Biden administration is doing right now, there's a deep problem with US democracy and US democracy could be over in four years. And nobody wants to talk about this now for perfectly understandable reasons, right? People want it to be over. They want it to be Trump, right? They don't want to think about the stupid state legislatures. They want to be happy about Biden, right? They want to move on. I get all of that. I don't know how to talk to them. I don't know how to tell the story, right? I, I, I feel like I know what's happening, but I can't quite figure out how to tell the story. So that's how I'm feeling right now, Lucas. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because when I was reading your book, it, it also had this sort of element of comfort food, you know, that you sort of like feel that you finally meet somebody who understands it, <laughs> but then you also understand it. So what the fuck does it mean? So this is this is one of the one of the one of the problems also, I think. It's very it's very difficult to change a mentality, to change people. And because uh, also I, I saw a couple of your talks. I also saw a talk you did for the European community in a sense. And and uh, I agree with the fact that the European community and the European Union is the way out. And I actually worked like about 16 years or 17 years ago. Uh, I was asked together with people like Rem Kolas, Georgi Conrad, and, and together with Barroso at the highest level of Barry Amon building to come up with a narrative for a new narrative for Europe, which means culture, which was too late. And I also said to him, yeah, well, it is actually a bit too late. And anyway, the European community should learn how to focus and then to disperse. I mean, this is the main thing, I mean, to get the message across. And although I believe in it, and we had about 86 meetings in which eventually everything evaporated and became quote <laughs> fake. Uh, so to just to put culture on, a sort of European platform in a sense. Also the fact that you're a specialist in Eastern Europe and I had a lot of Eastern European friends in the Academy of Fine Arts who all died basically in different conflicts. And I still have a lot of friends there. And uh, and and people seem, don't seem to understand the complication of the region in a sense, especially also not in the European community. And is this lack of, 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 of interest. I mean, this is a cultural thing because culture is also kind of important in this whole story in a sense, how you sort of like create a certain awareness. I mean, that's part of my job in a way. But, you know, as you're saying that, Luke, I, I always think that you are very interested in propaganda and the imagery associated with both propaganda and lies, right? Whether or not the explicit imagery or the thing that you don't see, you know, like the freeze frame that opens onto the true story of what might be happening somewhere, right? As opposed to the received propaganda narrative, or on the other hand, a propaganda image that when taken out of context is so clearly propaganda, has so clearly nothing to do with the truth as it's being sold to us. And um, and I, I feel like this time must be so strange for you to witness because those images are so dominant uh, in, our, in our world, I feel, Luke. Yes, exactly. I mean, I always had a grave distrust against imagery, even my own, in a sense, and 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 also kind of a very, very fascination with the idea of power, the imagery it produces, the idea of violence, 
which is consequential. Uh, and very early on in 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 when I sort of set out the the, the sort of building blocks of what an oeuvre could be, I would uh, rather choose it to be on something that was close, sort of still closer type of history, which was the Second World War, which was actually also uh, born out of a bi autobiographical thing, which, which I talked already a lot. But that also the fact that there was the complete downfall of Europe as a whole. And he also, Timothy also talks about that, the downfall of the empire. And so in that sense, I saw that as a real building block, I mean, as an, an element to, to come from it. Now we have evolved to something which is close to an element of insanity, I think. Um, Timothy, I thought there's a 2008 piece that you wrote for the 2018 piece that you wrote for the New York Times, where you talk about this, right? The role of the face or the image of authoritarianism, that the the the, the sort of image becomes um, this thing that masks all of the complexity. Yeah, I mean, if I could just if I could just ride on what Luke was saying, um, with the way the way they see the European Union is that it's it's a it's it's successfully displaced another story without telling its own story so the, the real story of europe and it's a fascinating and central story is that of imperialism and what you do afterwards so you know what is where does belgium go after the congo you know where do the dutch go after after the east, east indies where does france go after vietnam and algeria where does Britain go after everywhere? Where does Germany go after Ukraine? They all have a place to go, and that, that place is Europe. And, and they make this place Europe the, the most successful political project, you know, arguably in the world ever. But it, it comes at the price of not talking at all about the past, right? So Europe has this whole story about how we're nation states and we got together and now we cooperate. And it's not true. I mean, they weren't nation states, they were, they were empires. And so the whole thing is a sleight of hand. And it works pragmatically, but at a certain point, you need, you know, Luke says culture, I would say history, but, you know, you need, you need a story which is true and resonant, right? You need something. And, and as you say, Lucas, it's similar with the U.S. I mean, it's, I completely understand how nice it is to be positively surprised by Biden. I'm positively surprised by Biden, right? But there's still, there's the undercurrent of, 18 of 1877 and Jim Crow and the big lie that that Mr. Trump told is is a continuity in U.S. history and that continuity has to be recognized and it, it and it has to be seen for what it is in order to be stopped and that's the, that's the painful thing you have to do both at the same time you know you have to say okay this is good but at the same but at this very same time you have to say that doesn't mean that my country has returned to some kind of normality because there's no such thing as your country returning to some kind of normality, right? Yeah, I, I sort of agree with the fact that this is also the whole game, the whole point by staying sharp and the idea of awareness and questioning and education. These are elements that are extremely important. I mean, so, yeah. You know, I guess that this is a maybe a difficult question to both of you, but you know, you just said something interesting, this idea of something being true and resonant. And it seems somehow like those are not, they're certainly not mutually op opposed, but they're often in conflict, um, that the truth seems just to be less resonant than the lies <laughs> in so many cases. I mean, the, the thing the thing that strikes me when we, when we, when we focus in on America here 
is that Americans often think that freedom is about like just doing what you feel like and just doing what you feel like, or even just like how you feel it's not. And that's the most manipulable thing, right? Like what you feel like is the most manipulable thing. It's the most, it's the most predictable thing. Whereas like freedom has to be about unpredictability. Freedom has to be about, you know, becoming a person who a machine can't predict or who other people can't predict. Because if you're predictable, then, you know, tyranny just becomes a matter of efficiency. And, and so like one of, one of the, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in is, is how the digital makes us more predictable. Um, so that like what people, what people feel like doing or how they feel is more, is more and more predictable. And it, it gets us back to the events of January 6th, because, you know, the events of January 6th were, were, were carried out by people who were, you know, largely, I mean, they had their own views, but they were selected by machines, basically, you know, like the things that they thought they didn't see themselves, they were selected by machines as being people who would be vulnerable to this kind of stuff, right? And more and more of life is like that. And that's not culture, right? Like that's behaviorism. That's the worst in us. Like that's the stuff in us, which is not free. It feels like us, like we feel very emotional about it, but there's nothing personal about it. There's nothing individual. And, and so like a lot of what's, you know, the word propaganda has been used a lot, but you know, with what's resonant, I mean, what's resonant and echo is resonant, right? But an echo is not original. Like if I just like, if I just cast something out into cyberspace and a lot of people repeat it or the algorithms repeat it and it starts to affect behavior, that's resonant. Right. But as you say, that's not that's not what's true. And I think freedom has to do with the truth. And I think this is like one of the things where Americans have really gone wrong. Like freedom is what I feel like believing right now. If it's what you feel like believing right now, there's always going to be somebody like Mr. Trump who's really good at making you feel that way. You know, if I think about Luke's practice, there's so much um, so much an attempt to interrupt those dominant narratives through new images. Right. That draw attention to alternate ways of seeing something but which are themselves, Luke, seductive, right? Your images are seductive. And as a result, they kind of do that work, I think, of drawing people into the alternate narrative, as it were, right? Or a counter narrative, because they seduce you in, but of course are telling you something very different than, say, the received wisdom about uh, imperialism or something like that. But I, I, I think, first of all, one, one should, be, uh, should be ambiguous about things, which I think is the most important part of, of art is that it should never be unambiguous. That's where it actually ends up to be propaganda. I always was always against the fact that you could load up an artwork with uh, a political meaning from the beginning, which I think is uh, horrific. I mean, actually dangerous. I and mean, we saw examples of that. And uh, but that doesn't mean that an artwork cannot have a political stance at a certain given moment in time. This is an element of timing also, which is important. So this. Ambigu- ambiguity is 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 a, is a motor actually to make people also think. I mean, so not so much in terms of confusion. I mean, because that is a, is another danger, of course. But and then of course working with a medium which is so some such an anarchism, which is actually painting, which is kind of interesting. I mean, also I'm doing this uh, because there was talk about, about algorithms. I wrote a, a text on the image. I don't know if you sent it to Timothy from 1996, in which I. Reinstate actually the danger of the internet, the danger of the the idea who owns the internet, who actually who forms the internet, but also the fact that it becomes very important for personally for for an individual to see how he appears and when he disappears, for example. So there's a nearly pornographical element within 
how you deal with the imagery. So all these things, of course, are, there's a very big, you can't fight new technologies, I think. I think that's a stupid thing. You have to, of course, you have to use them in a tactical sense, in a way. And that is partially also what I actually do to a point of trying to achieve by an element of belatedness, which is painting, which is kind of interesting because I'm doing this project now with Luke Stales, who used to be an artist, but 40 years ago was uh, started up uh, working with algorithms. I said, and I was, I asked, was uh, in this project is actually still going on, is can the algorithm retrace the source? It couldn't. I mean, also the fact that the algorithm will only recognize the things it has learned, basically. So, but the inquest is not to make a painting that looks like my painting, it's to see how the algorithms will come up with the idea of the signifier. And to a certain extent, that was a possibility when given and fed, of course, and regulated by. The question is, I'm also interested in the aberrations. So, so in this project, Luke, the algorithm read your painting and was unable to identify the source image. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay, got it. So, so I, I got a bunch of stuff I want to say. Um, so, I mean, num, num, number one on on technology, it, it, like the the book, the book is also a total disaster, right? I mean, the book the book brought about 150 years of religious war. It took us a long time to figure out copyright. You know, like it, it, radio was a medium that the Nazis wanted to use. Like all the stuff which seems common wonderful to us now. You know, was once disruptive and, and horrible. So the, it's it's absolutely right. Like you can't say let's make the internet disappear. The question is, what are you going to do with it? And like the thing which the thing which I really don't like is the notion that it's nature and like that you know Facebook is nature and things are just the way they have to be, right? Like that, that, that's that's just that's just incorrect. We have to alter it. And like the way that I would want to alter it, you know, Lucas, you said art's part of the answer. Like art is the art is the answer. Right about there is no other way to deal with big stories besides art. Art is the only thing which breaks down big stories. I mean, that that is what artfulness is for me. But so we have to have an internet which actually makes kids create stuff. Yeah. And the way we're digitalizing schools now, unfortunately, is the opposite. We're using digital technology to do the same old stuff, but worse. Yeah. What, what we should be doing is using digital technology to teach kids how to make stuff more yeah. and then they can make, then they can make something of themselves. Right. Like then they will, be, and then they won't just be recipients later on. Right. They'll, 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 they'll have created, they'll have created something. And then I wanted to say something about, I mean, I'm going to venture now something about, about, about Luke's art, which I like about, um, about this. It's, it, it, maybe it has to do with ambiguity, but what I really like about it is that it's not about outrage. Because for me, for me, like outrage is is the is the other side of the coin of looking away. So if you're outraged now, that means you were looking away then, and your outrage is like a way of compensating for the looking away. And then it's like once you've done the outrage, you've done your work, and it's all it's all over, right? And so outrage isn't the answer, right? Like that shouldn't be what we're aiming for. It, what we should be aiming for is something like understanding and understanding is sneakier. <laughs> understanding has to creep into people, right? You have to catch them by surprise in some way. And that's that's one of the things I mean by artfulness. Yeah, and also the word, the idea of understatement is something which is really important in art. And it's a very old thing. And a lot of people seem to lose that element. But that, that's, that's really uh, unfortunate.
sense. If we're looking at these big, these big sort of categories, whether it's art or um, how do you see, you know, thinking about your dream, Timothy, how do you see being able to communicate the story of what's actually happening? I mean, what tools are available given everything that's sort of militating against being able to successfully communicate that? How can you do it? Well, it clearly can. It, clear, it clearly can be done. I mean, it clearly can be done. I want to be an. Op, I want to be an optimist about this. Like, so that dream. I had that dream. I woke up at four sixteen this morning with that dream in my head, and I wrote it down. And I've been struggling to try to figure out how to talk about this, the, the post big lie thing, and you know, the dream. Why the hell not? I just I'm telling the dream, and then from the dream, I it goes forward. And like the dream has the immense advantage of having of, of being the case. It just happened. It was there, and so I'm just going to describe it and move, and 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 move from there. I, I, I think it's actually not that the hardest part is getting people's attention. Like that's the key word. Like getting people's like attention, not in the sense of like making a lot of noise, but attention in the sense of having people at a point where they can hear what you what you want to say. And that so in writing, I mean, in writing, that's all about beginnings. You know, it's all about finding the way that. You can catch people where they are. It's the same in public speaking. You have to catch people where they are. And then that from that point and where they are, a larger cone of possibility opens, opens up. But I'm optimistic about this. I mean, people actually like it. Like people like the things that they don't like, you know? So like it, 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 when I, going back a little bit to, to, to the digital thing, I, I banned digital stuff in my classes in 2006, um, you know, back when nobody was doing this and people liked it. Right. They liked it. They realized, OK, actually, it's not so bad listening to the professor as opposed to like, you know, breaking up with my girlfriend and booking a plane ticket or, you know, all the other things they were doing at the same time. Um, and they actually found that they liked being together in the classroom like they liked it. You know, they didn't know they liked it. But when all like all the rattling, the keyboard stopped and they were all doing the same thing at the same time, they were all they liked it. And, you know, their grades went up, incidentally. But people people like a lot of the stuff that they're not getting. And so I think like in a way, like people like artists, like there's this, we have, you know, not that I'm really an artist, but people who work in culture, like there is, there's something to tap there, you know, because the, the the very things people are so unhappy about most of the time are, are like, are the things that you can reach. Well, I, I, I think of course, with, with art, you have the possibility to not go into the moral stance of the situation, which I think is also an important thing. Uh, it, it is actually also an of a free zone that you can operate individually also, which is uh, kind of interesting. And the, the way to do that is, it's, 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 in, on the other hand, it has an element of perversity to it also, because there is the element of uh, the wire that also plays in that situation. But nevertheless, there is the possibility to criticize in a different way. I mean, also in a different time zone, because art in that sense is not completely real. I mean, the reason is why when, when everybody, no, no artist ever asked me, whatever medium he, he or she used, why do you still paint? Art critics did, journalists did. And my answer was always the same because I'm not fucking naive. Because art and painting has always been art. I mean, it's, it's the creation of symbolical capital. So it's interesting, if you use that element, you can actually influence in a different way. 
and at least make people stop or think or work on their memory or all those elements, which is which is interesting. That's also why I use tonality instead of color, because I know that, and this is a sort of experience I have, that people look at things, see, perceive them maybe in a monochromatic way, which they aren't in a sense. But because of that, they will come back in the brain later. So this is a, this is a way that you can actually activate uh, a signifier. So there are several ways to do that. And with painting, it is kind of interesting because it's rather physical. In a way. So therefore, it's very difficult to actually remember it because it's so complicated, even for the, the person who makes it, in a sense. And that makes it a kind of an interesting medium because it's kind of embedded in society without people knowing it. I mean, there's this beautiful example of the 80s. There was a photographer who made this sort of blown up picture of, uh, of this, this, this mother with, in her lap, she had the, the, her son with the shot dead during the whole conflict in the Balkan. And immediately, the, it resonates as one thing, which is a piet. So this is how extremely important this imagery is. And so these are things you can work on, you can actually reactivate, and you can actually make juxtapositions within that world, which I think are what we actually do to a point, because nothing is really original in the same. But one of the things, I mean, one of the things I'm in awe of when I'm confronted with painting is, is the, the, the density of it, or what I feel to be the density of it, that the, the artist has, that so much has gone into it, Right, I mean, there are so many, so much time, right? So much concentration, and you can't sense what all of it is. But I at least have the sense of this, like weight. But like, there's, there's some, there's so much in front of me. Like, it's like condensed. It's like somebody else's concentration, concentration condensed in front of me. And I, I always, I always find that marvelous. I don't know anything about art, but that there's a, there's a, there's a Polish artist called Józef Chopski who was obsessed with the idea of concentration. And he, he, he did this remarkable thing, um, which is, okay, in 1927, he was sick with typhus and his heart was broken. So he read Proust, um, he read A la Chaise du Temps Perdu. And then in 1940, he was in the Gulag um, and he was cutting trees in Northern Russia, but he was allowed to give French lessons. And so in that environment, um, every night, like having felled wood in the, during the day, he recalled the plot of this novel, right? Which is the most you know intricate, sophisticated thing you could imagine. And he did it in French, right? So the book itself is about concentration and memory. And then he he, he executed this feat of concentration and memory in you know in the gulag. Right, mm. in order to give his fellow prisoners this moment of 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 distraction, and, and so then right. like, and then he went on to like treat Proust as like his own hero, like mm -hmm. that Proust was his example of concentration. When he later went on to write about the Gulag, and then he be, but then I'm missing the main point, which is that Chopsky himself was a painter. That's what he did. Like he wrote a book about the Gulag called Inhuman Land, which is remarkable, and his notes about Proust. So he, two of the first fellow prisoners actually wrote down what he said. And those, that was later published as a book about Proust. And it's remarkably good. Not, it's extraordinary. But my point about Chopsky was the concentration. So he really wanted to be a painter. After the Second World War, he paints in, in Maison Lafitte in Paris for 50 years after that. 
And this is his thing that it's all about density. And like he had all these political things to paint and he never painted any of them with like a few exceptions. He didn't directly paint the things he experienced unless there was some clear moral reason to do so. He painted things like a black woman alone in a third class carriage of a train. Right. And then you worked and, and then you worked from there. Like you could draw the politics out from that if you wanted to, but also you could just sit in front of it and like feel the density of it. Okay. That's as much art as you're going to get out of me guys. Because, like, <laughs> <laughs> But you know, it makes me think, Luke, you, you, some of, so many of your images are not so many, but when you take images that are originally digital, right, whether it's mm -hmm. an iPhone photo or a screen grab or something like that, and you reproduce them, those are images that receive very little attention when we encounter them natively, right? As all digital images seem to receive very little attention. But by painting them, you, of course, inject or create much more of a demand for attentive watching. Right? It feels like you're inverting that um, and, and that yeah, concentration it, it, is it's, crucial. It's, it's important, actually. Uh, I, I wanted to show in Reels about, which was a whole show, which was actually also called after one of my favorite uh, uh, writers, I mean, Thomas Pynchon against the day. Because, I mean, Thomas Pynchon in, in the 60s wrote the novel, The Crying of Love 49, which is the invention of the internet, basically. He used the post system as a sort of secretive organization. And uh, I went to look about, okay, what, what are we going to do now? And so I looked about things that were set into a post, things that came from websites, websites that were under construction, like the normals where they were making sort of like would-be humans and all those things. And when you would post them and put them into a painterly time zone, so to speak, they would become something completely different. And it was also interesting because I also, at that point, won a prize like the Max Beckman Stiftung's Professor Prize where I had to give lectures and work with the collection and whatever. But also I had to put two paintings of mine uh, in the collection. And so I put them in the 19th century where there was this beautiful painting of, of Knopf, which is kind of cynical, you know, it's a guy who was actually with a gun, who is uh, uh, overseeing uh, hunting and so on, and Max Liebermann. And although the painting I showed was kind of, in terms of what you would see, would be the same because it was just a guy shoveling in my garden next to a tree. But when I put it there, the contrast was different. The light was different. It was digitalized. So you cannot get away from a certain element of contemporarity, which is interesting, I think. So this is how this thing sort of, without you even knowing it, sort of influences you. So and this, so it goes, this goes both ways. It goes both ways. It, and, and I think it's, it's, it's a preferable interaction because at least it sort of brings something completely unexpected in a way that is, again, helping your awareness in a sense. When I when I'm on the internet, like the back of my mind is always thinking, what is this doing to me? And when I'm looking at a painting, it's it's the opposite. It's like, what am I doing to it? You know, like where, like what is coming out of me? You know, in going in that direction, what am I what am I doing to it? There's one question, Timothy. I want to ask you, but I don't know if you ever saw it. But I mean, for me, what was really important in, I mean, especially the take on the Second World War, it was were three films which were made by Hans Jürgen Seberberg, which, which was the film, it, it's, it's the long films, they were made in the 70s. And the first one was Ludwig II, the, sec the second one was uh, the writer, I mean, of Karl May, 
and the third one was Hitler and Firma aus Deutschland. It's an interesting thing. It's seven hours, it's long, maybe a little bit dated, but nevertheless, I think it's quite interesting still because it deals with this element of loss also in terms of a cultural situation and how things have been constantly degraded and how things have also become taboo in the sense and, and the other way around. So it's, it's kind of interesting. When I did my show in Berkeley, I knew they had the biggest uh, uh, arch film archive, so I actually made the students look at the movie and post myself to do two nights, the last night, when they came out, because it's, it's kind of an obliterating situation, because it's, of course, so long. It goes with the ice side theory. You get the whole jabang that he puts into the underwear of Hitler, to whatever. So, I mean, so it's like this whole situation. And I, I think it's interesting because the element of the fetish and the, the thing, especially when it comes to fascism, I think, is something which is a reoccurrence. And uh, and one should be very doubtful and careful about these things. And so that, and also the fact that a lot of these people that survived the war virtually died out. So, so how will this be looked upon? This is also an idea. What's the legacy of a certain element of history? Which, and there was a big fight between Joachim Seyfest, who was an historian in Germany, and, uh, and, and Hans-Jürgen Seyfeldberg, who said that you should be able to dream history. But of course, Joachim Seyfest did the opposite. And there was a big controversy about that. But, you know, Timothy, that's something you, uh, I read in an, in an interview, one of the many that you've given, where you are talking explicitly about what gets remembered and what doesn't, right? That Auschwitz gets remembered, for example, when one thinks about World War II, but so much else about what happened in Germany just isn't in the active record, right? Or, I mean, it's, 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 it's recorded, but it is not actively present. Yeah, I mean, this was, this was a tendency that even the perpetrators noticed at the time it was happening. And it, it, I think it does go to one of Luke's major themes and points. It, it, Auschwitz is the easiest thing to remember because it's the thing which is most like a shield. So you know, there were not that many people worked there. You can imagine that it was like a machine. Um, it's true that Germans didn't know what was happening at Auschwitz, at least most of them. So if you make, if you make um, Auschwitz synonymous with the Holocaust, then suddenly it's all mysterious and abstract. And what did we know? Whereas of course, Germans didn't know about the Holocaust because the Holocaust didn't start in Auschwitz. It started on the Eastern front with mass murders that tens of thousands of Germans saw and wrote postcards about and talked to their wives and girlfriends about. So people did people did know about the Holocaust. And so there's this there's this there's this duplicity which we're precisely by recognizing Auschwitz, you're not recognizing the scope of the Holocaust, which goes on to this day. And it has this second, the second layer, which is that if you point this out, as I as I do in Germany, you know, which is a place where I have my own little you know cultural struggles, People ask you why you're minimizing the Holocaust because they, they've decided that their version is the maximal version. And if you if you try to say, well, actually, your, your version is the minimization, their immediate reaction is if you're saying something besides what we were taught in school, you're a bad person and a minimizer, right? And so that, and so the minimization has this kind of automatic defense built, built into it. And it, it flows into a point of Luke's, which I wanted to, to, to return to here, which is about the, the humans, right? The, the, the people who killed the Jews were people. They weren't, you know, they weren't machines and, and they, you know, they, they, they weren't, they weren't monsters. They were people. And if we're going to understand how they got to the, to be standing at the edge of a death pit, we have to tell a story 
um, in whatever medium that makes that makes human sense. And we can do that. I mean, that's the thing. Like it hadn't been done by Germany in the 1970s or 1980s in history. I think we're getting to it. I think we're getting to it now. And the same goes all the way up to Hitler. I mean, if you exclude Hitler from this, then you, in a way, you're again, you're like you're 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 preserving fascism by inverting it. So Hitler during the Nazi period is a Superman, right? Um, he's a demigod. And then after the Nazi period, he's not a person at all. He's a monster. But that's just the same thing. It's just you're just reversing the colors, but it's the same thing. Unless you understand him as a person who worked with other people and worked on other people, then you're going to miss the phenomenon the next time around, which is exactly what we do. Because every time you want to say in the U.S., um, look, you know, there's there's a big lie here or there's some similarity here. People say, well, it's not exactly like Hitler and therefore it's nothing. Right. And so you, you, you lose when you lose the humanity, you lose the history and you lose the reference and you lose any ability to, to locate things. So. Yeah, because you also mentioned that in, in, in the talk you know, where you talk about fascism and uh, not, I mean, not really fascism. So the, the idea of the which I found kind of interesting also the, the way you talked about the wall uh, and the, the way that uh, in this in the formal legislation the idea of state could be only discursive things like that so it was kind of interesting because that is a real danger because it brings us to another danger which I find the most dangerous thing which is polarization actually polarization of society culture one of the things that terrifies me about polarization is, is that precisely it's uncreative. So I get I get to be me because I'm not you, and you get to be you because yeah. you're not me. And neither of us has to create anything, right? Mm -hmm. The whole the whole game is 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 a you know it's a perpetual mobile. Like it just it goes off on its own energy forever, mm -hmm. and neither of us ever has to make anything. And what we have to you know the thing we have to talk about is the thing which is in the middle, which surprises both of us, but neither of us is neither of us feels obliged to make that thing. Yeah, because also also coming from the idea of a plural, a pluralism in the society, which was actually yeah. in the eighties, was kind of, there was there was this element of this dream, and now this dream is sort of evaporating into this element of polarization, and I think this is uh, I don't know what what's behind it in a sense. I'm constantly questioning it. I'm working on on a, on a new show for. Your gallery, I mean, in Paris, which is dealing with polarization. I mean, I made a show up, which is up now in Antwerp about my idea of the pandemic, which was the show with the numbers retracting and so on, rather big, monumental and corporal. And this other show is based on the, the, upon, upon this idea of graphs that deal with the polarization notably in the United States. I mean, the history of this uh, situation. Will you say a little more about that, Luke? You, before uh, Timothy came on, you and I were speaking about it briefly. Yeah, well, it's, 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 uh, it's I, I was trying to look for imagery. I mean, also thinking about this idea of this danger of the us and them and try to find imagery, which was I could do something. And by accident, I came about this research that was done by Mario and, and a, a collaborator who's an artist, but also makes these graphs, Mario Martino, which I contacted actually. And they made these graphs from 1957 to 2011, 
it's, it's, it's the rise of partisanship uh, in the United States and it shows this polarization of the House of Representatives. And I took four images of that, which is from 1957, 69, 89, and 2011. And I painted them because I thought it was interesting to physically paint them. I mean, which was kind of this anachronism back in play. And there's other imagery that comes about it. And I actually, I'm going at the title that has to do with you, Timothy, I'm going to call the show Eternity. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's very kind. Um, it's been really wonderful to talk to you. If we're talking about work in progress, I just want to mention then that I, I, these things that we've been talking about, I have been trying to resolve in a positive way. I'm writing, I'm writing a book about freedom, where, which is where I'm, you know, if I have all these diagnoses of what's wrong, which you both have been kind enough to mention, that I should also have some kind of prescription. So that's actually harder, but I've been, I, that's what I've been doing. And then a little bit of my optimism about art, I think, comes from the fact that um, on tyranny is going to come out again in an updated version in October, but this time illustrated. It's it's been illustrated by Nora Krug, um, a young German artist who who did a book called Belonging about her own German family in the war, which was quite wonderful. And I basically cold called her and I said, "You must be the person to illustrate on tyranny," and she was kind enough to agree. And so as I've been watching her do her work and watching on tyranny become a much better book. Um, that's made me that's made me optimistic about the possibilities for art. So I just wanted to mention that. Well, that that actually sounds like a really good note, good optimistic note to end the conversation on. That we don't have to end in the doldrums, you know. <laughs> um, but Luke and and Timothy, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the initiative. I'm really grateful. Thank you too, Timothy. Yeah. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswarner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Warner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.